All right, friends. Good morning again. Good to see you all and to you in Zoom as well. I can't see you, but I'm glad you're with us. <laughs> so if I had known what I was getting into when I first answered my mom, I'm not sure I would have responded the same way. Your niece, she says, has asked for this like new Christmas game. It's called Elf on the Shelf. I'm gonna get one for her. Should I get one for you and your kids too? It seemed like an innocuous enough question. Why not? Sure, I said. I'd vaguely heard something about this new Christmas trend with kids. Perhaps I'd seen something about it on Facebook or noticed the shelves filling up at Target with these things, but I really had not paid any attention to like what it was. I was a busy person. I was in grad school. I was working part-time as a worship pastor at a church. I had three little kids, probably at that point six, um, two, and a baby. And so this is like apparently the new thing people are doing with their kids at Christmas. Like, why not give it a shot? So I said yes. And my mom sent this package to our family. And our kids excitedly opened the gift from Nana and read the book that came with it, watched the DVD, pulled out this kind of like birth certificate thing. Because turns out this wasn't just an elf-shaped doll. This elf, the materials told us, was alive. We got to name him. The kids chose the name Cubby. And once uh, he was named, all of the materials said he would magically come to life and every night return to the North Pole from whence he came so he could like tell Santa about the behavior of the children that were in the house he was located in. He was uh, supposed to be Santa's watchman in our home. He was called a scout elf. Basically, he was a North Pole spy. Now, if that wasn't creepy enough to give me pause about this whole new game, Cubby also has a shtick. So every day, after going to the North Pole, he comes back and shows up in a different spot, making it clear that he is indeed magic and returns each day to keep an eye on things. And so, of course, there's a catch to the whole deal, because guess what? Cubby's not real, <laughs> right? So mom and dad have the job to do to move the elf before bed each night Otherwise, there's an awkward moment of explaining the next morning when the kids wake up and Cubby's in the same place he was yesterday. Oops, he's taking a late trip to see Santa today. <laughs> Again, if I had known what I was getting into, I don't think I would have said yes, but I did say yes. And Cubby was now in our house and our little kids were delighted. They, despite those awkward mornings when Cubby miraculously moved late, uh, the kids loved the game, finding him each day. They loved predicting where he might show up. They were excited to tell Cubby what gifts they hoped for from his big boss man so he could like spread the word. It was just too sweet to abandon. And so we survived the first December with Cubby and I kind of thought maybe that would be enough. And then of course the next November, the kids were asking, when's Cubby coming back? They remembered him. They wanted to see him again. So without my intending it, Cubby had now become a tradition. 
Through the years, Cubby kept coming, despite me and Jason's begrudging participation. Um, and as the kids got older and started to understand the truth about this whole Christmas deal, Elliot was the first to graduate and become part of putting on the Cubby game. So he delighted in moving the elf each night after his little sisters went to bed. And I was grateful to be rid of the responsibility. I assumed by the time Gwen was old enough to know what was really happening, that Elf on the Shelf could officially be done in our home. But years later, <laughs> Cubby persists. So even now, for my kids, it's not December if Cubby isn't touring our house. Now they take turns each night hiding uh, him for each other. Each morning, they still enjoy looking for where he's turned up. Sometimes they get creative, pose him eating Christmas cookies or, or playing with their toys. But despite being long since detached from the like scout elf part of Cubby's identity, he remains a fixture of the Martin's Christmas. And probably, I, I think he at this point may always be so, as long as my kids, any of my kids are in the house. Because tradition. So I start with this story not just because it's the holiday season, but because we're still in the midst of this series of conversations this fall around how our spirituality and its practice evolve over time in a series I've been calling Community Evolving. And today I wanna to focus specifically on a topic within this conversation that I think feels relevant this time of year, the role of tradition in evolving. Now in some ways there's a paradox here because you know, like Oxford Dictionary defines tradition as a long established custom or belief that's been passed on from one generation to another. So tradition, you could argue, is the force that resists growth and change. Tradition might tell us we cannot change because, well, this is the way it's always been done. But of course, it's just like life's not really that simple. We can't live in pure uh, tradition. Traditions can't actually remain perfectly fixed over time. Life gets in the way. Kids get older. History happens. Cultures shift. And over time, the traditions a culture upholds need to adapt or they need to be abandoned altogether. Innovation is sometimes necessary to discern what to uphold and how to honor that which has come before in a new time in a new place. The best traditions, I think, do evolve. All of this, I think, is helpful when we consider something like the tradition of Advent or the celebration of Christmas. Because as a Jesus-centered spiritual community, we're part of a faith that has a lot of tradition connected to what we think of maybe as the more spiritual foundation of Christmas, not simply the North Pole thing, right, that's become associated with it. That being said, we're also a pretty weird little group for a church, I think. We're trying to hold space that values safety and diversity, as well as is spiritually centered around Jesus. So we have folks who are coming from a variety of expressions, even within what you might call the Christian church, as well as folks who don't come to Haven for much of a church going background at all. And that might mean we hold some of these traditions that come up at this time of year very differently from one another. Some of us might feel like we really can't observe Christmas without first lighting candles each week in an Advent wreath. Others, that might feel like a very foreign custom and not so important. 
And that diversity of connection to tradition might even include how we think about the stories that are at the very center of the Advent and Christmas conversation, specifically the stories around what's been called the nativity of Jesus. Now for me, growing up, the nativity stories were really kind of the only ones from the Bible I was familiar with. Hearing them every year in Christmas Eve services and Charlie Brown's Christmas, acting them out in nativity plays. I didn't know much about Jesus then, but I actually deeply connected on a heart level with the God who came close to a young girl named Mary and was born in a humble stable. And then as an adult, I went to seminary and along with many other first year seminary students felt a bit deflated when our professors started talking about this part of the Bible. You see what most seminary students learn and I'm now bringing you into the dirty little secret of is that these nativity stories that begin two of our four gospels are largely considered by biblical scholars across the board to be some of the least historically verifiable parts of the Jesus narrative, they would say. And honestly, it doesn't take too deep a dive into the concerns to see why that would be. We actually have a lot of testimony about Jesus's adult life from ancient sources in the New Testament, in the early church and beyond. Like the life of a Jewish rabbi named Jesus who lived in first century Palestine, was executed by the Romans through crucifixion, that is as historical a fact as we are able to establish uh, for an event that took place 2,000 years ago. But though the earliest followers of Jesus had a lot to say about his ministry and the conviction even that they believed he had been raised from the dead, from what we can tell, those earliest Jesus followers had a lot less to say about where this Jesus came from in terms of the circumstances of his birth. So all of the oldest documents that are part of our New Testament, as well as documents outside of the New Testament, the writings of Paul, the Gospel of Mark, all of these address his teachings, his ministry, the death and resurrection, none of them talk of his birth. It isn't until 75 or 85 years or so after Jesus would have been born when Matthew and then Luke write their gospels and that's when we see the first stories about jesus's birth appear and these stories that start to appear several decades after jesus's life they do have some narrative points of alignment they both feature a couple mary and joseph um, who have a baby in a town called bethlehem both stories claim that mary's pregnancy was miraculous that she was a virgin when she gave birth but beyond those couple of important things, the stories also have some pretty real differences, particularly when it comes to describing the historical setting for the events of the stories that they tell. So Matthew sets his story during the reign of Herod the Great and makes Herod an important part of the tale. As magi from the east come looking for a baby, they follow a star, and Herod, the infamous tyrant, is threatened by the news. So in Matthew's story, Jesus' family is forced to flee Bethlehem and live as refugees in Egypt for a season. Okay? Luke's story is different. Luke doesn't address any magi or any threat to the newborn Jesus. 
he speaks instead of a census during a period when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, he says, requiring the young parents to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem late in the pregnancy. But history tells us that that period of census in which Quirinius was the governor of Syria actually took place after the death of Herod the Great. So from a historical standpoint, Matthew and Luke's two stories are set about a decade apart. I'm not trying to ruin anyone's Christmas. <laughs> I acknowledged that to name this might be distressing if it feels fundamental to our faith that we can verify these stories historically. But perhaps historical accuracy, as we think of it in the 21st century, is not what either of these narratives is really meant to be about. Perhaps that's not the right framework for them. The nativity stories may or may not reflect literal history exactly, but they are a part of a tradition of Jesus-centered faith. And I believe they're an important part of the tradition, not simply for any facts they might or might not tell us about Jesus's origin, but because they definitely show us how those in the decades after Jesus's life were making sense of who he was and how he fit within their own traditions. Matthew and Luke, in writing their accounts of Jesus' birth, are doing something with more than writing history. They are contributing to their own Jewish tradition evolving, perhaps inspired by God's spirit present with them. They are innovating to bring their tradition forward. And I invite you, as we hear again some of these familiar stories in this season, to consider how and where that might be happening. So in two weeks, at our Christmas service, we're gonna hear much of Luke's very famous account. The story that focuses on Mary and the travel to Bethlehem. But today we're gonna look at a chunk of the first and oldest nativity story we have. The one in Matthew, as told in Matthew 1. We're going to look at what Matthew shares of Jesus's origins before he gets to the Magi part, okay? For him, the story of Jesus first starts, and, and we'll skip over this a bit, I'll just summarize it. It starts with a long genealogy, a record that recalls many of the genealogies in the Hebrew Bible, because Matthew is a deeply committed Jewish scholar of the Hebrew Bible. He is speaking to other Jewish people about what he understands to be the good news of Jesus. And one of the foundational truths of that for him is Jesus's deeply Jewish lineage. So he starts with the genealogy, highlighting that Jesus comes from a long line of impressive ancestors, including King David and Solomon, and he starts with this foundational ancestor, Abraham, and traces things all the way down, the long line of descendants, some quite important in Jewish history, all the way to Jesus, whom he calls the Messiah, a term which meant God's anointed, and is laden with a lot of importance and expectation in the first century for Judaism as many looked to the divine to bring a new liberator, a new anointed one who would free them from oppression and bring restoration. And so that's where we pick up the story with verse 18. He's just shared the whole genealogy all the way to Jesus, the Messiah. 
And then we read, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, or also could be translated Jesus the Messiah, happened this way. While his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband-to-be, was a righteous man, and because he did not want to disgrace her, he intended to divorce her privately. When he had contemplated this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This all happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord told him. He took his wife, but did not have marital relations with her until she gave birth to a son, whom he named Jesus. So our story starts with a couple who is betrothed. In the ancient Jewish world, uh, it was customary to have a, a betrothal for a year or so, and the legal arrangement was more formal than what we think of when we think of engagement. There was actually a contract that had kind of been executed. This couple was in some sense married, but they would wait a year or so before consummating the marriage. Um, because often the young woman was very young, generally 12 or so, when she became betrothed. Often the young man was a bit older, and so it was considered appropriate to give like a year of where the marriage has not actually been consummated. They don't live together, they haven't had sex, um, but they are in all intents and purposes legally bound to each other, and to, um, to end that agreement will require a divorce proceeding. And so we have a couple that's in this state. Mary is probably 12 or 13. Um, Joseph is probably a bit older. And at this point, Matthew is very interested. This is his story. He's focusing on Joseph. And Matthew's story focuses on this father-to-be Joseph rather than Mary. And, and he wants us to understand the way he tells the story that Joseph is a good Jewish man. He's a righteous man, he says explicitly. And as a demonstration of this righteousness, he tells us what happens when Joseph finds out that the young woman he is betrothed to is already with child. Of course, for Joseph, initially, the assumption is uh, that, that Mary has been with another man. And at that point, the appropriate, the righteous thing to do under Jewish law and custom would be for Joseph to divorce her, to separate with her, to not consummate the marriage. But there are multiple ways he could do this. He could do it very publicly in a way that would likely endanger her, potentially subject her to stoning, which was kind of like under the law, she could qualify for that. It wasn't really um, a custom that people generally followed through on. So more likely, it would just be a lot of public shame. Or he could separate from her quietly, which would show more compassion seeking to protect her and her reputation to whatever degree was possible. Matthew wants us to know 
that Joseph is righteous, but he's also merciful. He's compassionate. He's made up his mind. He's going to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to cause her any shame. <clears throat> but then, of course, Joseph has a dream. And this, for Matthew's audience, might feel familiar. For our Joseph has a famous namesake, a man who was also known for his dreams. The Joseph of Genesis was one who saw destiny in his dreams. And though he experienced hardship, his journey of following dreams eventually led that Joseph to the land of Egypt. And that journey to Egypt saved his family's life. Perhaps focusing on a Joseph, hearing divine messages in a dream is an important signal, it's a cue to Matthew's Jewish audience that their tradition is evolving in this story of Jesus. And a bit of foreshadowing here for a similar journey to Egypt that's to come. So Joseph, like his namesake, has this dream. And this dream includes significant revelation. Matthew seems to want us to know that God is the prime actor here. There's all this language in which God takes the initiative. God has sent Joseph, a divine messenger, an angel communicating directly for God. And the angel addresses Joseph as the son of David, reminding him he comes from a line of men whom God has had important purposes for. And then the angel makes clear that Mary's pregnancy is not a result of her own actions, it is of God's. The child is conceived from the Holy Spirit, the angel says. And the name Joseph is told this child should be named, and the name that Joseph is given for this child is Jesus, a familiar Hebrew name that means literally God saves. The Hebrew pronunciation would be something more like Yeshua. God saves. The angel's message also links this name to what we are to understand from the outset that Jesus is here to do. He will save people from their sins, the angel says. So Matthew shares this bit of information about the dream, and then he gives his audience a bit of further commentary, linking the revelation from the angel to a passage from the Hebrew Bible, the words of a prophet Isaiah. Now, this is the first of many links that Matthew draws throughout his Gospels. He, he likes to quote the prophets a lot and make connections between what they have talked about and what is happening in the good news of Jesus he's sharing. This all happened, Matthew tells us, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this link to prophecy, it's interesting. He quotes this line from Isaiah that probably most of us are only really familiar with in this context, right? In the context of this story. But if we were serious students of the Hebrew Bible, we would know that the line in the context of Isaiah doesn't actually seem to be speaking about some future baby hundreds of years in the future that's going to be the Messiah. That's not actually how that prophecy was functioning. In context, Isaiah is addressing a political crisis in his day. And in the midst of that crisis, he gets this picture 
of the promise of a child that will be born and then says before the child reaches like three or four, but the time that a child could say, I like this, I don't like that, like have an opinion, this crisis is going to be over. So there is a promise about a baby being born, but it's definitely a promise about an, something happening in their time and in their political crisis. The child spoken of initially in the passage, which would be born to a young woman, I'll be honest, there's, a, there's an issue with the Hebrew and the Greek translation. The virgin part is, is not clear in the, in the Isaiah. It is clear that that's what Matthew see, sees in, in his gospel. Make sense? But there was a prophecy about a young woman having a baby. They call it Emmanuel. It means God is with us. But it was initially supposed to be in Isaiah's day. But for our storyteller, Matthew, to understand Jesus as God's anointed, to understand him as the Messiah, the Christ, means to go back and read the Jewish texts differently than they had been read before. So he is building on the child of promise from Isaiah and asserting that while there may have been fulfillment with a child of promise born in Isaiah's day, there is even greater fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. If that baby showed that God was with them, this baby shows it all the more. This baby is the true Emmanuel, God present with us. Now, as Matthew tells the story, Joseph heard the angel's message and followed it. He didn't shake off the dream. He didn't just like, oh, I ate something weird. That was just a dream. He believed it. He modeled faith and obedience to the way of God. The story doesn't tell us what the social cost there may have been for Joseph marrying a woman who was already with child. We don't know if folks accepted Jesus as his son or if there was always a whiff of scandal about them. Later, we would see Joseph take further action to protect his family as the threat of violence comes close. And as Matthew tells that story, eventually the child that Joseph is protecting comes from Egypt back to Palestine to save his people, just as the descendant of the other Joseph did when Moses came on the scene. Again, in this story, a tradition is evolving. Joseph is a new kind of Joseph making way for Jesus to be a new kind of Moses. So what do we make of this evolving of tradition that we see in Matthew's nativity story? And how might it inform us about how we hold tradition, even as we grow, change, evolve? I want to end by just suggesting a few things. First, I think we see that the best traditions remind us that we have a distinct story. We've come from a particular time and place that has shaped our understanding in some way. So for my kids, like the tradition of Cubby the elf embodies part of the story of their early childhood. They remember the sense of wonder that that season contained, and it carries something special for them, and it connects them to that past. It reminds them where they've come from in some way, and so they want to keep that alive. Matthew's nativity story 
We don't know how much is fact or not, but it's not pure imagination. It's deeply rooted in his understanding of Judaism and his belief that Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed, one who is connected to Matthew and his friends, all of his communities, Jewish history. Not all of the traditional elements may hold the same import to us if we don't share that tradition, but we can appreciate those elements that they carried significant meaning for Matthew and his audience. And in a similar way, we can consider the traditions we cho choose to hold on to, how they speak to our own stories. What tales have shaped our own understanding of ourselves and our place in the world? What customs do we want to hold on to that remind us where we've come from? What might we be fine to let go of? Because it doesn't really honor our history anyway. Or what traditions might we want to adopt as we knit ourselves into a bigger story? Again, I think this is an interesting set of questions for us to discern communally, because if we do hold diversity as a value, then that means we hold a number of stories within even our small community and a number of traditions. So perhaps part of this work is being invited to grow in learning from and honoring each other's stories and traditions, even as we grow to appreciate our own. The second thing I notice is that a tradition invites us into something multi-generational, something that has come before and will potentially survive after. Considering tradition is about more than considering whatever we've inherited and whether we want to keep it for ourselves. It's also about what do we want to pass on? What do we want to give to our children, our grandchildren? What do we hope they will carry forward? Tragically, throughout history, it's been through the suppression of cultural traditions that empires have tried to assert their dominance, right? Understanding that to extinguish cultural traditions can extinguish culture. But continuing to practice and pass traditions on to the next generation has also long been a subversive resistance to oppression. Under Roman persecution in the early church, Matthew's insistence that God had sent a Messiah in Jesus, one even who the Romans may have killed but could not stay conquered, that was an act of subversive resistance. In the same way, we have the opportunity in our day to choose not just for ourselves, but for our children and those who are still to come, what kind of faith and spirituality we want them to know of. Do we want those who stand for, I don't know, white supremacy, complicity with violence against the trans community, and so on, to be the ones who carry forward the tradition of Jesus to the next generation? Or do we want to invite our children into what the Jesus tradition means to us? Do we want to pass on a tradition that reflects the liberation of the oppressed, the inclusion of the outcasts, that they may carry that truth forward and allow those traditions to evolve in a way that continue to liberate and include. 
That's personally what I hope for. Finally, the adapting of tradition can be a sacred space where we encounter the Spirit of God bringing new life and fresh meaning. Let's say it again. I believe the adapting of tradition as we make it our own and we make choices around how we carry it forward can be a sacred space where we can encounter the Spirit of God bringing new life and fresh meaning. Now, I don't know exactly how the divine spirit was present to Matthew as he composed his gospel or to Luke as he wrote his story, but I do believe that those moments of inspiration as we adopt a tradition and then make something new of it, we, we kind of do the both and, can be truly sacred spaces of encounter with the divine as we connect with what has been and what is now. I think of the experience I had during my sabbatical this summer when I first started writing and singing the song um, that some of you have heard, Emanuela. The song was inspired in part by meeting a young woman who visited Haven on a trip to the Bay Area last year that had that name. It was a, a feminine version of Emmanuel, Emanuela. I had never heard that name before the name that means God with us. And on my sabbatical, I reflected on the places where I had experienced God present with me, including what it meant in recent years, not just to connect with the masculine presence of God, but also the feminine. And then I remembered this young woman and connected with the truth that God is present both as Emmanuel and Emmanuela. And so writing those words, I felt deeply connected to that spirit. God was with me, connecting the same tradition that moved me as a child, hearing that nativity story to the places of encounter I experience now. Hoping that the same spirit that inspired Isaiah's first picture of the Emmanuel child and inspired Matthew to connect that child to what was happening with Jesus was now also speaking to me of, of God with us today. That's my hope for us, Haven, as we continue to evolve. May we all find moments of sacred encounter with the spirit when we adopt and adapt traditions we've inherited and make them our own. So next week, we're going to try adapting our tradition of a Christmas Eve service. Now, I love the Christmas Eve service, partly because, again, that was one of the only services I, you know, experienced meaningfully as a child. It's still one of my favorites of the year, the reading of the Christmas story, the lighting of the candles, the singing of Silent Night. But in our community that gathers from a wide span, where folks don't come to each gathering in person, where um, we often travel during the holidays and so on, it might not always make sense to do that uh, Christmas Eve. And so we're trying to adapt, retain the beauty of the experience to pass on to our children, invite them into that tradition, but in a way that works for us, that's true to us. So as we adapt our Christmas traditions or otherwise, May we do that with the same spirit our ancestors did, connecting to the past, open to the truth of the present. Some details may look different than they did before, but I pray the heart of what's essential will stay true 
May our story continue to unfold and may we have the wisdom and creativity to pass it on well. Amen. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll go into our time of discussion. Emmanuel, Emmanuela, God with us. We recognize sometimes it feels like tricky work to know how, what to adapt and what to, what to hold on to, what to bring forward, what to change. But I believe you're with us in the unfolding, in the discernment. And so could we experience some of that this season? As we, as a community, continue to adapt some of these nativity, Christmas, Advent traditions, and beyond. Each of us individually in our homes as well as collectively, would we have a sense of, um, of being, holding something that has been held by others before and some reverence for that, even as we recognize some things may need to change? And there is um, a gift in contributing to the evolution of our traditions. Would you meet us in that process? Amen.